podcast where, you know, we have fun and we have conversations, but we are also talking about things that are important to us as an academic community and things that will help us grow and uh, uh, become the greatest version of viewpoint that we can be. Um, we, as always, I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Dr. Steiger. Dr. Steiger, how are you doing today? I'm doing okay. It's a, it's a beautiful morning. I feel like it's always a beautiful day when we're recording, um, but it's, it's fun to have so many students back on campus, um, busy days, but, but you know, I don't have much to complain about these days. How are hey, you feeling? I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm, I'm enjoying the uh, process of getting back to a sense of normalcy, whatever, whatever that might mean. And you know, we, we haven't done this in a while. The last time we were trying to figure out what we might think about a love of learning, we talked to Miss Hanks about uh, the different hats that, that we all wear. And we wanted to come at the conversation today from a brain science per perspective and just kind of give people uh, really kind of fundamental knowledge about what's going on in our brains and considering how that impacts our learning. And to do that, oh, I'm excited because we got a student with us today who is uh, going to help us get the student perspective. We have uh, Ms. Gracie Schechter. Gracie, how are you this morning? Hi, I'm good. It is a really pretty day. I'm looking out at one of the prettiest parts of campus right over the LOL wall. Um, and I'm very, very excited to be here. I keep calling it the super epic podcast recording because that's that's how I feel about it, so. <laughs> it's super epic because you're with us today, Gracie. Um, so Dr. Sari, you introduced this idea of neuroscience um, and, and this cognitive load to me. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on in our brains when we're trying to learn? Absolutely. And I want to I want to preface this by reminding everyone that I am a history teacher. I'm 11th grade dean. I am not a neuroscientist. So if I say things that, that strike your knowledge of neuroscience in a way that you're like, eh, it's not quite right. Understand that I'm, I'm using working knowledge of brain science to try to help me to be a better teacher and to, to better understand the things that are happening um, when we're in the classroom. So um, be patient with me. Feel free to to um, hit me up with emails to, to criticize my understanding, but, but know that I come from a, a place of care first. Um, so thinking about neuroscience, I just where this information comes from for me um, is, is a series of, of um, book choices that we as a faculty have read, including NeuroTeach, um, uh, attendance at a conference, the Center for Transformative Teaching and Learning at St. Andrews School, um, a week-long conference to, to kind of help um, teachers understand um, the concept of mind-brain education, which is that essentially we all are um, biological systems, right? We are, um, our brains are biological systems, electrical systems, chemical systems, um, and all of these things are happening when we're learning. Right, that learning has a biological component. There is there's a physical thing that is happening in brains. And the more we can understand that, the more we can understand those processes, the, the better off we'll be as teachers, right? This is the idea of mind-brain education. And one of the concepts that I took from, from going to this week-long workshop that's been really important for my thinking, especially in the past year, as we've all been bombarded with um, new concepts, new experiences, um, um, just new realities, is, is the idea of cognitive load. And the idea of cognitive load is a way of understanding the process by which um, our brains go from our senses, right? Eyes, ears, noses, um, tastes, all the things that, that 
go into our brain, how our brain processes that in a space called working memory, um, and then how ideas, concepts, lessons um, are transmitted from senses through working memory into mm -hmm. long-term memory. Mm -hmm. Okay, so and, and, have I lost you yet? No, not at all. But one thing that I would add to that, uh, in our senses, we take in a lot of information because we have so many different ones, right? You can right. be hearing things at the same time as you're eating something, at the same time as you're looking at something. So you you have a large uh, space to input to your sensory memory. But yep. that's true for working memory, right? It, right. Uh, the number changes, correct? Right. So so this um, neuroscientific educational researcher um, gave this presentation on cognitive load, and he said um, the cognitive load theory recognizes about twelve inputs. Mm -hmm. um, for sensory memory, right? So, so picture like 12 hoses dumping information into your brain simultaneously. Your working memory can only really process four at a time, three to four at a time, right? Mm -hmm. So um, another metaphor, I'm gonna change metaphors a couple of times, try to catch everybody, right? Is the a working memory is sort of like your workbench, right? Mm -hmm. Your workbench has a limited amount of space. Right. And, and if you've got sort of four compartments on your workbench, right, that's that's what your brain can process at any one time to get get things from senses into the place where you're manipulating them. And if, if your brain, if your working memory isn't manipulating things, right, putting it into conversation with things that you've learned before, um, processing it, changing it, doing something to make sense of it, it's not going to make the move into long term memory. It just isn't right. So it sort of goes in, rolls around, goes out. It does not become part of your long-term memory. Right. But that, so that space, that workbench, that three to four channels of information that you can process at any one time is really, really, really important. It's a, it's the funnel or the, um, the bottleneck, mm -hmm. right. That goes from sensory memory, right. If, if you're a driver, you know, there is so much information going on all the time and, and you're sort of processing things without even knowing it, right. That's your sensory memory is sort of operating on not a threat, not a threat, not a threat, not a threat, not a threat. It's only when you see the brake lights in front of you and you're like, Ooh, I need to do something. And suddenly your consciousness clicks in, right? Yeah. I experience this all the time when I'm driving 99.9% .9 of the things that my senses experience when I'm driving are not entering into my, my working brain, right? Mm -hmm. It's only those, those um, places where I really need to process. I really need to do something. And the times you get really scared, you still remember some of those things, right? Like that's sort of the, that's what we're talking about here. And so the, the, on the other side of that bottleneck, right? According to cognitive load theory, on the other side of this um, bottleneck, long-term memory is essentially limitless, right? There's no limit to how much you can learn. Mm -hmm. You can say that again. I love that. <laughs> There's no limit to how much you, you can learn, mm -hmm. which means that the place that we really need to focus our attention as students, as teachers, as members of this learning community is how do we maximize the work that we can do on that workbench? How can we really take care of one another to make sure that that workbench is as effective as it can be? Mm -hmm. That makes Absolutely. sense? Absolutely. And, and Gracie, how does this idea resonate with you? How, what do you think when you start to hear this science behind something that you may have felt before? I think it gives a lot of clarity to kind of more of an abstract process that happens. I think um, I think sometimes we're as students we are consciously recognizing that this is happening. So we could be standing outside ready for history class to start and to turn to our friend and say, 
I can't do this right now. I have a math test that I'm so worried about. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that we're recognizing it in with all of um, the scientific terms, but I think we are aware that things are taking space in that um, in that kind of working memory where we might need um, for an upcoming class or discussion. I got to have this conversation with um, teachers at, at one of our Late Start Learning series. Um, uh, this would have been in 2019, December of 2019, which feels like a generation ago already. Um, we were in person and it was it was the end of the semester. It's the, the holiday time is coming up, right? And so what I did in this presentation is I sort of just went through a list of the to-dos that I was thinking about that morning. And what mm -hmm. I was trying to do was, was to essentially short circuit my colleagues' brains, right? Mm -hmm. Try to get them thinking about all of the things that distract them or that might've might have been occupying their brains. And then I instantly asked them a review question from the previous session, right? Do you remember this thing that we had talked to you about last time? Mm -hmm. And if I had given them appropriate framing and set up and reminded them of some of the things that we had done, primed them and asked that question, probably most of them would have been able to answer it. But because I primed them into distraction, right? I had filled up that working memory with all the things that might be distracting them too. When I asked the question, they all laughed mm. because there was absolutely no chance any of them was going to be able to like pull back into their long-term memory, pull this thing back that that we had talked about that they, they might actually remember because we had used it in the previous class or the, the previous session, but, but they just laughed, right? And as adults, we laugh at this because we all know this experience of being overloaded, having, having distraction, uh, knowing these things. And yet we also sometimes forget it when the students are coming into the room that they're in exactly the same place. Right. And it's, it's interesting that idea of priming, right? And how you can be primed for, for a certain thought and just the the science that you gave us even though you're not a scientist right there's a there's a physical act of learning there's a physical thing that happens in your brain and it's not a, a it doesn't change with age right it's a human thing and so what we, what you're experiencing as a student is very very much the same as what we're experiencing as adults right and so my question becomes and gracie i'm going to throw this one to you how do we usually respond to these overloads? Like whether or not we have the names for them, whether we know uh, uh, my working memory is, is overloaded today. I don't, I don't know if anybody has that language before Dr. Steiger teaches them, teaches them that. But uh, how do we usually respond to that sense of overwhelm, that feeling of, oh, this is just too much for me right now? Can I ask a clarifying question? Are you asking how we should respond or how, how no. we do? How, you, how do you respond? How do you just naturally respond? Um, I think the way that Steiger explained it kind of captures it really well. I think we let, we let it block us off from whatever um, might actually be needing to happen. So um, I'll speak from personal experience using that history class math test example, mm -hmm. I um, might not be so good at, you know, sitting down in history and pushing my math test out of my, out of my mind and letting myself take a break from thinking about math and focusing on history. So mm -hmm. at times I've been guilty of kind of letting that hold, letting the math test hold space when in reality, I, um, I need that space for history. And I think something important to note um, that 
will kind of turn into advice for my classmates is that that can sort of snowball because a reason why I might be worried about my math test is because it last time in class, I was worried about something else. So I don't know the material super well. So then when my history test comes around, when I was focusing on the math test, I might not know the history material really well. And I might have those same stressors. So I, it's not great to look at it in a way where like, oh, I need to refocus because I want to avoid being stressed, but you do want to avoid the vicious cycle of putting yourself in this position. For sure. Can, can I just ask you a little bit about like, what are some of the things that in your experience and maybe go pre-pandemic because I know so much has changed in the pandemic and, and so many of our patterns and, and life has changed. If you can remember back to when you were in um, A push as a junior and, and you were in math and you're in English and, and you're in all of these classes, what are some of the things that are coming up for you? And, and you can just brainstorm this. This doesn't have to be a super like focused answer or rehearsed answer. I'm just curious, what are the things that, that you might experience in a day that are gonna, gonna make it more challenging to sit down in whichever class it is that you're, you're walking into and, and get going. Yeah, I think I think about it in four different categories. Um, the first one, which is a big one is we, and this is very pre-pandemic, but we often had pretty serious assemblies sprinkled in throughout the week. Um, whether it was something on sexual assault or, um, you know, microaggression set at school, we were having serious conversations right in the middle of our school day. And I think that's something that when we come to class, um, that, that can still be on our mind if it's not unpacked and fleshed out after having serious conversations. So that's kind of the first one I think about that um, can kind of derail whatever um, class you're going into. The second one is social interactions. I think every student can remember a time where they had their class after lunch and the teacher acknowledged the fact that this was the class after lunch um, and that people might be still focused on a conversation they were having or a joke someone told. Um, and then I think the third one, which I kind of spoke on before, is any sort of other school stress, whether it's for the, cl the class you're in, a different class, um, an upcoming project, finals, APs, whatever that might be. And then the fourth one, I would say, is things that happen at home. So lack of sleep, uh, unfortunate argument with a parent, um, a like plans for the weekend, um, and I think those are all four very broad topics that um, can really impact a school day and, and it, your time in the classroom. Absolutely. And what, what you're speaking to is like that human element of it, right? Because even for me as a teacher, there are still all of those things that, that go on, right? I'm usually sitting in, in the same assemblies or maybe not this year yet, but I'm usually sitting in the same assemblies listening to the same heavy topics and now I got to go teach or there's things going on at home and now I got to go teach. And I think it's an important to kind of acknowledge that so much of this is outside of our control and just kind of sits in our brains. For me, when I go into class, I, I know that my personal kind of whatever loads that I'm carrying isn't the most important in that moment right? So I make a conscious decision that I have to deal with that later or not right now. And I think that gets into a conversation about uh, how do you process emotions and how do you process these, uh, these things that are overwhelming you 
And, and that's important to say because you can't just shove everything to the side all the time, right? Sometimes that, that uh, conversation in, in assembly was way too heavy and it, it really did something to you and you really need to process that. There, but we also have to acknowledge that there's a time and place for everything. So my question starts to become, is this, do you feel like this is something that uh, uh, we have to work to focus through and focus anyway? Or is it something where we have to find a balance and, and kind of give more grace to, to the fact that this is happening? <laughs> I love that your name is Gracie. Um, uh, and and the, this idea of giving grace versus pushing to focus on what you have to focus on. How do you navigate that balance? How do you, how do you know when, when it's time to, uh, to say, hey, I got to get this done. I'm going to get this done versus say, hey, I got to love myself a little bit right now and just kind of give myself space to, to deal with this. How do you how do you navigate that? Yeah, well, first, I I want to agree with you when like I think the instance where we have those serious assemblies, those are oftentimes where it is we need to be in a space where we can unpack that and and talk about it and have those conversations. Um, but I really like what you said about giving ourselves grace, because I think often as students who care so much about our academics, we don't realize that that's already so much. Like, I guess to give yourself a break a little bit, because if you, chances are, if you're worrying this much about it, it means you care this much about it. And that in itself, um, like proves that it's all gonna work out, I think. I think that's harder to see when you're in the thick of it, but, um, caring this much about an upcoming math test or um, a project due um, sometimes like in itself is enough to just like, like let yourself have space to put it aside. Yeah, absolutely. Which is not always easy to do, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and it's, it's easy to say, kind of push things to the side and just kind of deal with it or it's easy to be outside of the thick of it and speak to like, oh, you're just in the middle of it right now, like, like get through it. But when you're in it, it doesn't always feel that simple, right? Uh, Dr. Steiger, for, from a, a teacher perspective, how do you manage that? How do you, how do you manage that same, same struggle? So, I mean, the, as we've talked about so many times, right? There's the, how do I manage the struggle as a teacher, right? As a person who's having those same, those same issues, right? Like I can get that email just before a, a class files in and suddenly, instead of thinking about how I'm gonna welcome my students and get ready for, you know, talking about the Wilmot Proviso, I'm suddenly thinking about um, this email that I need to respond to and a, and a situation with a student or uh, some, other, some other concern that maybe has been in the back of my mind, but now is up at the forefront. So mm -hmm. I think there's that, but then there's also the, how am I gonna help my students prepare for um, the class that I wanna have? How do I receive them, welcome them and get them going towards where I wanna go? Mm -hmm. and, and I'm going to apologize. I'm going to mute. There's a lot of noise in the hallway. So I'm going to pause for a second. But... No problem. Um, but I think, I think a major takeaway from what we're talking about here is that we are all carrying these things with us. And we are all carrying these like really heavy and important things uh, with us everywhere we go, whether it's something that happened off campus in the world that you live in or something that happened on campus just through a conversation I get emails now in the middle of class and it's all on Zoom. So like, I'm sorry, I see it. And it, it, 
it immediately snapped me out. And so, <laughs> so the the question that uh, we start to deal with, and I think um, one of the most beneficial things that we can give to uh, anyone listening to this podcast is how do we how do we quiet our mind or how do we focus and engage when there's all of that noise, right? Um, I alluded a little bit to my process of uh, uh, putting things away for later, right? You might, you maybe used to call it bottling it up, but I know that that's not the right thing to do. So even though I might bottle something up, I'm intentional about when I can go release that, right? And, and how I set time aside to go release that um, so that I can be productive in the spaces that I need to be productive in because as, as much as it might be hard to hear, sometimes you have to prioritize what's important, right? And when I'm teaching, my, my students who are in front of me are far more important than everything that's going on in my life, right? Simply because that education and that relationship as teacher to student is really important to me. That's why, that's why I'm in this. How do you two uh, um, quiet your mind and, and focus in spite of all the things that might be going on in your outside lives? So I, I'll talk just first, let me, I wanna follow up and, and complete a thought about the idea of the classroom, right? And, and neuroscience and, and the neuroscientists give us some, some clues. One of the things that can really help, right, is, is the idea of prior knowledge, right? Having something that, if you're gonna be introducing a new concept or you're gonna be, be um, jumping into something that can help students to, to kind of essentially clear space for the task at hand is to have some reference back to something that the expectation is they're going to know it, right? And so um, the for sort of the learning process to kind of get to that place where where you can refocus, um, having those quick reminders. What have we covered before? What's something that you know that we've covered um, so that they they have something to to like hold on to. Um, to carve out that space in the working memory that, that they're gonna be able to utilize then mm -hmm. for the task that you want them to do, right? So, so relying on prior knowledge, right? Giving, them, giving students a, a space to process, right? Um, so if it's coming off of that, that you know, heavy assembly, um, I learned my very first year, I, I wasn't really prepared for this, but we had a, a drunk driving assembly and then I went to a class with a bunch of seniors um, and, and you know, the, the mood, the energy was so low, right? It was a really somber assembly mm. and, and recognized there was nothing I was going to be able to do in those first 20 minutes that was going to have anything to do with the content that I had wanted to, to have for the focus that day. Mm. And so we just talked for a few minutes and, and before long, the conversation sort of calmed down, um, it quieted and there was a, an opening for a transition. It ended up being a really good class. It just, they needed those few minutes to kind of process. So recognizing that my lesson wasn't gonna work anyway. Um, so might as well give the time to let them, let them sort of talk through some of the things that were on their minds. Maybe some of those lessons then moved <clears throat> into their long-term memory. And so, so suddenly that assembly isn't just lost because they didn't process. Right. Um, and, and some of them may, you know, still be living with some of the lessons that came from that assembly. They may not be living with any of the lessons that came from that class discussion. And that's okay, mm -hmm. because sometimes the larger point um, is, is what they're taking from their broader context. Mm. And so humility about that. 
So these are some of the things that I do um, that I've learned or, or do or experienced as a teacher, but I'm, I'm really curious to hear from Gracie. Um, I, I, I actually think I didn't realize I did this until I had to sit down and think about it, but I basically call it the five minute rule. So again, I just wanna say if it is something like a serious or heavy topic, like Dr. Steiger said, I, I can remember so many instances where we took those 20 minutes to actually flesh it out much more than a five minute um, time period. But basically five minute rule is to give yourself five minutes to flesh it out a little bit, um, whether that's with yourself, with a friend or a teacher. Um, basically, I find myself um, writing down a to-do list of what I have to do. And sometimes that in itself feels like I'm giving whatever thought is taking up space in my mind, I'm giving it enough time for it to feel like I completed it just a little bit. Mm -hmm. So if I have, um, actually, um, I was at basketball practice the other day and I was worrying about um, making sure I had my thoughts written down for this for this recording. And I had to tell myself, okay, Gracie, give yourself five minutes before practice in the car to write down a to-do list of what you have to do to prepare for this. And then you're gonna prepare for it at a different time. Um, and that's my practice because then I have it, once I'm done with whatever I needed to focus on, whether it's basketball practice or a class, I have it all in front of me now. Um, and I feel like I've given myself space to put put a little bit of time towards what I'm worrying about, but also not complete, completely disregard what I needed to be doing. Um, but then after five minutes, it's over and I put it away. Either I end the conversation with my friend or I close my notes app where I wrote down my to-do list or like Mr. River said, I put the post-it note away um, and I return back to the activity that I'm doing. And something that helps me is um, while I'm in that moment of stress, it's a little bit of like, don't put yourself in this position again. Like. I knew probably before my basketball practice that I had to, that I was going to become worried about preparing for this podcast. So kind of a little bit of locking in that feeling of like, you don't want to feel stressed like this again. So use this next time to not put yourself in that position. Um, and I think that can be, that can be used across a few levels. If it's something like um, more task oriented, like a project or uh, studying for a test or preparing for something rather than kind of a event but yeah yeah it's it's incredible to kind of hear how through reflection we learn even more about ourselves and how much of this conversation is really about getting to know your own kind of quirks right and and what you do what you don't do um and it's interesting that we all have strategies to deal with this load whether you understand it or not you have a strategy that gets you through your toughest days. You have a strategy that you lean on when something happens in the middle of your day and you just can't, right? I think a part of this conversation that is equally important is how we interact with each other knowing that we're all dealing with this, right? We are all carrying the, the, uh, this weight. We are all people. We all live lives outside of our classrooms, right? I remember I used to think that my teachers lived, ate, and slept in their classrooms. And I found they out don't. it's not true. It, it's crazy, right? Um, some do. Some do. Some, <laughs> some do. So I, uh, 
Dr. Sari, you touched on this a little bit, but I'd love to flesh it out a little bit more about how we can work with each other better with this information. Um, one of the things I do at the start of my classes is to, uh, I say, give me a number one to five on how you're doing, right? One is the worst, five is the best. And you can see students kind of thinking through it and, and giving, holding up their threes or holding up their, their twos or whatever. But it's a way for me to kind of just check in with them. And I, and I find that just doing that little act at the beginning of class just kind of opens up uh, a pathway for a conversation to, to continue if it needs to. Uh, what, what kind of strategies do you use? What, what can you suggest to others of how to deal with each other while we're carrying our cognitive loads? So <clears throat> I do the check-in as well. Um, my, I, I've never tried the number thing. I actually might. Um, but, but one of the things that, that there's a trade-off, there's an inherent trade-off in the, the check-in because on one hand, I think it's really important to, to ask those questions and get that sense of where are my students at the start of this moment? Like if I appreciate and respect the fact that they're all coming in with something, they've come from somewhere, they've gone through the hallway where they may have experienced other things, now they're sitting down, giving that time to just check in, figure out where they are is also gonna give me a minute to, to calibrate and figure out where I'm gonna go next. What do I need to do next to make sure that they'll be set up for success in the rest of our conversation. Mm -hmm. The flip side, and, and I think Gracie in our, in our planning conversation, Gracie sort of reinforced this to me, is that sometimes that conversation will unlock um, other things that maybe a student is compartmentalized. They've put away, they've taken off the workbench and suddenly the conversation, the check-in, all of a sudden it's back in the center. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there's some risk in that. And, and fortunately, um, I feel like in my subject area, teaching United States history to 11th grade students, many of whom are sort of coming to terms with their place in nation, world, um, you know, broader society, I, I feel really fortunate that I can, I can tie those links back, right? And, and, you know, I start looking for those ways to turn the thing that they're talking about, right? Especially if it's about a broader civic universe mm -hmm. tie that back into the thing that we work on that we're going to work on right find that bridge start looking for that bridge from the beginning mm -hmm. while still trying to be present for the students so that they can see that the things that they're worried about aren't irrelevant to the stuff that we're talking about right make that connection and so turn it into something that's not just a distraction but can be a really productive tangent yeah it doesn't it doesn't always work but sometimes it does and and it can be a really useful thing. It turns those concerns, those thoughts into something productive. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I, I try, right. And sometimes mm -hmm. it may be, it may be half an hour down the road, right. Where instead of talking about the Wilmot proviso, we've just spent half an hour talking about, I don't, I, I don't know what, whatever it was that, that came into the room and, and it may not be a really great bridge. And I think Gracie's probably been in the room where we reached that point where, where I've had to say, all right, we're not gonna solve this problem today. Like, mm -hmm. I really appreciate that you've shared all of these ideas. Um, I, I appreciate that these are the things on your mind. And then sometimes it's just a, a pause, right? Mm -hmm. let, the, let it sit for, for a minute, let it be quiet. Let people sit in that quiet and then start easing back in, right? Mm -hmm. Tie it back to what did we talk about last time? Yeah. And I know we, we talked with Miss Hanks way back when about like voice and changing your voice and being able to, to communicate in a different tone. And I know those are the quietest moments in my classroom. Right. Those, those are the times when my voice is the softest. 
the lowest, the almost a whisper at times. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, and I know I do it and, and now I'm going to be super self-conscious about it, but I've named it <laughs> in a recording, but, um, but I know it's something that I do and Gracie can probably say better than I can, whether that works, but, um, but that's yeah. something I've, I try to do. Gracie, I'd love to hear because you've actually been in these classrooms where this has happened and you've been in, in you've actually been in my class too, uh, in a sense. So you've had all these different kinds of check-ins and you've had uh, teachers trying to leave space for you. How do check-ins work? How do check-ins feel from a student perspective? Yeah, I think uh, for me, it's kind of like whoever is the first student to speak sets the tone. Because if, uh, coming back to your scale, Mr. Rivers, like if someone, one is not doing too good and five is doing pretty well. If someone comes in and the, and the first number to go up is a four or five, most people that were actually at a one probably are gonna inflate that to match yeah to match the energy and it'll actually be a two, their one turns into a two or a three. Mm -hmm. And then in, in the same way, Dr. Steiger, when maybe you more explicitly ask us to actually share what's going on, if the first person comes and is like, I'm feeling great, it's almost Friday, um, I just aced a test, the kid that bombed that same test on the other side of the room mm -hmm. is not gonna say that right after that student. Mm -hmm. So. I think to my fellow classmates, knowing that whoever speaks first does kind of set the tone and to be aware that just as our teachers are trying to acknowledge that we're all coming from different experiences, that um, the person sitting next to you, behind you, in front of you is also coming from a different experience. Um, and I don't think, not, not to call us selfish, but we are pretty inward focused when we go into classrooms. And so to understand that, I think when we're doing those check-ins and to be aware that we're all coming from different things. Um, but I think for me, what sticks out as a student um, when teachers do check-ins is if they actually follow through. So I have teachers in the pandemic that, um, um, you know, in our in our classroom are being very transparent about the fact that they understand this is very hard. But then at the same time, when I go to assignment center, they're the people that are assigning the most work, the most tests, whatever that might be. And of course, it's not um, it's not a zero sum game in the way that like if you're acknowledging that times are hard, that means you're not going to assign any work. But it's it's the leeway. Are those the teachers that are being a little bit more flexible on deadlines that are willing to talk to students during office hours about um, about an assignment? So. I guess what I always notice is the teachers that are trying to be active in understanding what's going on in our world, are they, are they actually following through in terms of workload and accessibility? Mm -hmm. Well said. That was, a, that was a shameless little plug too. Uh, <laughs> so we could have this conversation all day. There's so many different layers to it. Um, and especially when we start to consider the things that people are carrying and how how different the things that we carry are and how uh, we have to prioritize those things for ourselves. But just to kind of wrap this one up and, and, and turn to close this one, let's leave with some takeaways that, that we got from this conversation, takeaways that we think either are beneficial for the community or for ourselves. Um, I can go first in saying that I think it's critically important that we bring awareness to the fact that this is happening, right? I think 
because it's something um, that is uh, physically happening in our brains and whether we like it or not as human beings, it's happening to us. We need to know about it so that we can handle it better, right? And so, and if we ever want to get to the point where we can control our focus and uh, do what we set out to do and not just kind of be hijacked by uh, a moment in time or hijacked by an email, hijacked by something that happens in the world, we have to be able to uh, uh, handle our brain science in a fundamentally scientific way, right? Um, Dr. Seiger, what's your takeaway from this? So one of the things I come back to, right, I carry with me in this conversation all the time is, is the fact that there's also an equity component to this, right? That there are, there are students in our community, in the world beyond, right, who are, are carrying a lot with them at all times, right? Adults too, right? They're, they're carrying things with them a lot. Um, I think, you know, from, from a very basic sort of keeping it at the level of biology, right? Some kids, hopefully not in our community or hopefully we're aware, but, but some students go to school without enough to eat, right? Not sure what they're going home to, right? These uncertain circumstances. I think, you know, at a meta level, these are things that as teachers, we have to appreciate and understand where are our students coming from? What are they experiencing? And how is that going to affect their ability to engage? And so I always try to think about that, whether it's, um, you know, in you know, the, the unique circumstances in our viewpoint community um, that radiates out from Calabasas, if it's in a broader world of understanding what adolescents are, um, recognizing that the, the adults that I'm working with, that maybe I'm having a meeting with, but they don't seem like they're super engaged today, like, it's, it's, there's no shame, there's no judgment, it's like, you're dealing with a lot today. Let's, mm -hmm. let's just start with that, acknowledge that, and then figure out um, where we go from there. Um, and so, you know, coming back to that idea of grace, finding grace in um, our ability to, to meet students, um, to meet peers, to meet colleagues, and, and to make sure that we're all doing okay mm -hmm. so that we can do the work that we wanna do together. Mm. Well said. Gracie? Yeah, um, I think my biggest thing is that this is normal. Um, but first, I want to say that if to all my classmates, if you feel like teachers aren't going through this, I think listening to Mr. Rivers and Dr. Seiger is evident that they are um, and that we're not the only ones with this happening. Um, but I think I would kind of say to everyone to try and be proactive about it, not to wallow in whatever is going on if the circumstance um, doesn't doesn't call for that. So kind of like indulge in that five minute strategy I pointed out, um, engage in your te teacher's check-in, do the things, try out strategies um, that will help you focus on whatever you need to focus on. Um, but then coming back to that kind of normalizing point, um, everyone has this going on. We, we love the trope of like the perfect student, the, the perfect GPA, the um, extracurriculars, athletics, but every perfect student, however close they might be to that, to that prototype stereotype, whatever it might be, they also have those things. They're, they're coming into classes with other things going on. And um, just to be sensitive of the fact that everyone's going through that, whether it's teacher, faculty, or the person sitting next to you. Mm. 
well said. What a what a what a perspective. And we we want to take the time to thank Gracie uh, for joining us. Thank you to all of our listeners. Dr. Sire, thank you. You know, you're you're awesome. Thank um, you, Mr. Rivers. And and keep listening to, to the Patriot Pod. Any students out there who uh, who have a voice that you want to have heard, reach out to us and uh, we'd be more than happy to collaborate with you. And as always, you stay classy, Calabasas.